Good morning, Seven Mile Road. I hope and pray that you are well and God is sustaining you by His grace. We long to be together to walk through the Word, but are thankful for God that He's given us this technology that we could at least walk through the book of Philippians together in this way. And so if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. And while you're turning there, I wonder, maybe you've heard this analogy of religion before, and it goes something like this. Uh, we're all looking for the same God who is on top of a mountain, but we're just on different paths to find Him. So some are on the Muslim path and as they climb up the mountain. Others are on the Eastern religions path, maybe a, the agnostic path. They don't know what's at the top, but they're trying to get there, or, or maybe on the, the Christian path. But eventually, what will happen is we will all get to the top. Now, it is true that all other religions function like this. Climbing up the mountain in your own strength in an attempt to get to God or, or whatever the deity may be called. But the gospel is completely different. Every other religion offers this system to work to get to the top of the mountain. But Christianity is unique in that in the gospel, God doesn't wait for us to climb to the top of the mountain. In fact, He knows there is absolutely no way we could make it up that mountain. We're, we're on the bottom. And so what does He do? In His grace, He comes down the mountain to rescue us. Now in our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 3, Paul's warning the church at Philippi of these false teachers who are attempting to mix Christianity with that kind of man-made religion. They're saying, no, Jesus actually doesn't come down the mountain to save you, or at least not all the way. You actually have to find your way within yourself, the strength to keep yourself right with God. And to this, Paul says, absolutely not. Redemption in Christ is all sufficient. And so Paul wants the church at Philippi, and he wants us to learn that, if we were to sum this up in one sentence, true joy is found in forsaking self-sufficiency and knowing Christ through the free grace of the gospel. And we'll see this in three parts as we walk through these 11 verses. First, uh, we see a, 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 a warning from Paul's past in verses 1 through 6. He warns us to beware of false religion. Then in verses 7 through 9, he exhorts us to see the surpassing worth of Christ. That's a, an example from Paul's present. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, he tells us to know the power of his resurrection. So we get this biography of Paul from his past, present, and the vision for his future as we walk through this passage together. So let's read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 together and dig in. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your word. We ask now that Your Holy Spirit would take it and apply it deep into our hearts. And God, that we would glory in the gospel, not in our own works, not in our own flesh. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we want to observe in this, pa- this passage is Paul's exhortation to beware of false religion. Look again at verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so it's as if he's saying, listen, I can write to you about the glories of Jesus Christ all day long, and I will stand up to those who threaten you by twist, twisting this glorious gospel. I'll do this till the day I die. Why? Because your joy, your rejoicing in the glory of Jesus is far too important for me to stay silent. And then in verse 2, he starts to tell us what this false teaching is. He says with very firm words, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now notice that three times Paul says, look out. Now, there's no exclamation points, no emojis in the original language, so, but there was repetition, right? So he emphasizes three times, look out, beware, beware, beware. And he's saying this is a seriously dangerous group of people who are trying to lead you astray. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and he says they, they mutilate the flesh. And so who, who are these teachers that are threatening the church at Philippi, and how are they mutilating the flesh? Well, These were people who claimed to believe in Jesus. They weren't enemies from outside of the church, but from within. But they taught that in addition to faith in Christ, you also had to be circumcised. You essentially had to become a Jew to be a Christian. And so as Gentiles, which is non-Jews, as they're coming to faith in Christ and joining the church, they're saying, hey, listen, that's great, but you actually also have to have an additional step to truly be a Christian. So they're, they're teaching, instead of Christ alone for salvation, they're teaching Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus circumcision. And in doing so, they've compromised the entire gospel message. They're attempting to mix God's grace with man's effort for salvation. And they've completely lost the gospel in doing so. And Paul has harsh and firm words for them. And to illustrate this, uh, I'm certainly no chemist, but I do know, as most of us do, that the chemical formula for water is H2O, right? Hydrogen 2, oxygen 1, H2O. It's water. It's refreshing. We need it to live, right? It hydrates us. Now, what happens if you were to take that formula and you were to add another oxygen to it? You would get H2O2, hydrogen 2, oxygen 2. Now, do you you then get super water? Have you improved upon water by doing that? Is it more hydrating? Is it more refreshing? No, you've actually completely changed the chemical makeup 
And instead of making a super water, instead of improving upon water, you've actually created hydrogen peroxide. And in its purest form, not only will it not hydrate you, it will kill you if you drink it. You see, no one can improve upon the gospel. To add to it in any way is to destroy it completely, to lose it completely. And so to this, Paul says in verse 3, listen, these are not truly people of the faith, but we are the circumcision. We're the people of God. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying, listen, our salvation is not found in any physical act or in anything but in Christ alone. Now, Paul knows the danger of this because of his past. He doesn't just know it uh, theologically, he knows it experientially. And he goes on to tell us in verses 4 through 6 that he once put confidence in the flesh in this way. Look at verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives us his his ethnic and religious resume. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, listen, here are seven ways I used to put my confidence in the flesh. I think we can relate. First, he says, I used to put my confidence in ritual. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's Paul's way of saying, listen, I was committed to the rituals of my religion from the very beginning as an eight-day-old baby. But he missed what the rituals pointed to. Right? See, circumcision pointed to Christ. Circumcision was forming a people that pointed to Christ who would form a people for himself. Christ who would cut away the callousness of our hearts. But Paul missed it because he was putting his confidence in rituals. He goes on to say, I used to put my confidence in ethnicity and in my ancestry, in my family background. He says, I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. But Paul missed that the descendant of Abraham, through whom all nations would be blessed, was Christ himself. He goes on to say, I used to put my confidence in my status. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was He had a known reputation for his commitment to his people and to his religion. He says, I I used to put my confidence in tradition. As to the law, a Pharisee, I would interpret the law of God and I would apply the law of God better than anyone else. I used to put my confidence in zeal. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was so passionate about what I thought was God's will that I was persecuting Christians. And then lastly, he says, I used to put my confidence in obedience to the law. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's saying there was no one who was as good and moral as me. And don't miss what Paul's saying here. He's saying your discipline, your ethnicity, your family background, your status, your reputation, your tradition, your passion, your zeal, whatever it is, those things may get you accolades and benefits on this earth, but they are useless in providing what matters most, a right standing with God. Friends, let me ask you this morning, where is your confidence at this moment? Is it in Christ or is it in the flesh? It's easy to say with our mouths, right? Yes, Jesus died for me. I believe the gospel. But deep down, I wonder, do you think 
that your righteousness is found in your own moral performance or your career or your status or your family? Or do you think that, yes, God saved me, but I actually have to keep up righteousness for God to continue to accept me? You see, you can reject Christ in two ways. The first is sort of common to our understanding, right? You can do it by rejecting God's law and indulging in sin. There's another way. You could also reject Christ by trying to keep God's law as if you had the righteousness within yourself to be perfect. And both of those, law-breaking and law-keeping, are an affront to Jesus and the free offer of grace in the gospel. And I would say the latter, trying to to gain righteousness by law-keeping, is far more common among those of us who profess Christ. Why? Because we can hide it behind the veneer of good deeds. We can look spiritual on the outside, but inside our confidence is not in Christ, but in ourselves. I'd also submit to you, not only is that more common, it's more dangerous. Think about who the enemies of Jesus were in his ministry. It wasn't the prostitutes and the drunkards and the tax collectors who loved and adored him. Who put him on the cross? It was the Bible scholars. It was the religious and self-righteous who rejected him. So Paul says, listen, beware of this false religion that looks to, to find confidence in the flesh. So then what should we seek instead of that? And that leads us to number two. We see a, an example from Paul's present to see the surpassing worth of Christ. Verse seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is saying, I repudiate my rituals, my ethnicity, my status, my zeal, my tradition, my obedience. I repudiate it as the basis of my righteousness before God. And I'd encourage you, don't mishear Paul here. He's not saying that those things are wrong necessarily in and of themselves. He's simply saying that, listen, they're useless in gaining you salvation, right? It's like trying to buy real property with monopoly money. There's nothing wrong with monopoly money. It's just not going to get you what you need in that situation. That's not what it's for. So so what he's saying here is, listen, Jesus saved me from all other saviors. He saved me from seeking salvation in my own righteousness. As the hymn writer Edward Mote says in this famous hymn, My Hope is Built, the first verse says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now, Moat uses the word frame there, and it refers to the frame of mind. I dare not trust the sweetest frame of mind or frame of heart. And what he's saying is, listen, not just on your worst days, but even on your best days, even when you have the sweetest frame, even when everything is going well, don't lean on your righteousness, but lean wholly on Jesus. And likewise, on your worst days, when you've sinned greatly, don't try and pay back your sin with your own attempts at righteousness. Because guess what? You can never pay back what you never earned in the first place. Lean wholly on Jesus' name. Consider all attempts to gain righteousness within yourself before God as rubbish. 
Now Paul writes with, with firmness and passion here. And, and the word that he uses for rubbish in verse 8 refers to dung and excrement. Why would you cling to refuse when you can have treasure? And, and, and do you see that? Notice the gain that Paul writes of. He, he's not saying it's the surpassing worth of heaven, though heaven's a wonderful blessing. He's not saying it's the surpassing worth of having your sins forgiven, though, man, what a wonderful privilege that is in the gospel. He's not saying the surpassing worth of the church, though it is beautiful to be brought into the family of God. He's saying the gain, when I forsake my own attempts at righteousness, the gain is Christ himself. The ultimate blessing of the gospel is that we get Jesus himself. And so if, if our attempts at righteousness, if they fall short then, okay, how can we be made right with God? If we can't do it, then how does it happen? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 9. He says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what's called the doctrine of justification. Pastor Clint talked about sanctification last week. This is justification. It's a legal term that means you're declared righteous by a judge. So God is the judge. He's the just judge. We are the guilty party. Okay, so how then can that judge declare us, the guilty party, righteous? Well, it's not by our own defense. The evidence is clear that we're guilty. It's not by our own righteousness. So Paul says, no, it's by the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account. Not because of anything we've done, but because we've been joined to Christ by faith. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And friends, we are prone. If you're like me, we are so prone to practice justification by works, aren't we? We believe, yes, Jesus saved us, but we think, man, we've got to continue to prove ourselves to God and to others. We're, we're, what are we doing? We're trying to climb that mountain to get to Him. Or we know He came down to save us. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. But now that I'm saved, it's fully dependent on me to keep myself right with you. We can so easily function out of the endless burden of self-sufficiency instead of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And I would say, friends, is that you? at this moment? Are you overwhelmed with guilt because you keep failing in the same area? Are you exhausted from trying to maintain that level of religiosity that you just can never seem to maintain? Is there no joy in your walk with Christ? And so you hear this and you say, yep, that's me. And you throw up your hands and you say, okay, now tell me, what do I do? And I would say therein lies the problem for each of us. We're always looking for something to do. But instead, what we need is not to do, but to believe the gospel. And Christ will save us from all other saviors. So if you're looking for application, let me give you some great application here from the mouth of Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. This is the only place in the gospels that tell us specifically what kind of heart Jesus has for sinners like you and me. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Jesus says, stop depending on yourself and answer the free offer of grace in the gospel. I will yoke you to myself. I love you. My affections are for you. John Bunyan was a pastor in England in the 1600s, and he wrestled with this, this burden of works righteousness. And he, he tells of a time when he was awakened to this truth in the gospel. And this is a long quote, but it's well worth our reflection. Listen to what he says. He says, one day I was passing into the field. This sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was in front of him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous, my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And listen to the result. Bunyan goes on. He says, Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Friend, whatever you've done or whatever you've left undone, lay your burdens down. Come to Him in faith, either for the first time or for the 10 millionth time and know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of His righteousness, you are righteous. His affections are for you. You're righteous in Christ and you lack nothing. So we're to beware of false religion. We're to see the surpassing worth of Christ in the gospel. And then lastly and briefly, we see number three. Paul tells us, gives us a vision for the future to know the power of his resurrection. He goes on in verse 10 and says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, we may be tempted to think, okay, so the, the free grace of the gospel and righteousness is offered to us by faith. Doesn't that mean we can just sit back and say, great, Jesus has done all this for us. We can just be lazy and do nothing, right? But no, notice in Paul, this truth of justification by faith doesn't produce laziness in him. And, and I would say, if you have a hard time seeing how that fits together, let me encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Clint's sermon from the end of chapter 2 last week, where Paul emphasizes the necessity of obedience that flows out of the gospel. But we see it again here. What is Paul saying? He's saying, here's my vision for the future. In light of what Christ has done, my vision is to spend the rest of my life knowing Him more and more, knowing the power of His resurrection until I attain that myself, until I meet Him face to face and am risen with him. See, this is what the Christian life is. It's growing in holiness, sanctification, that flows out of our being made righteous with Christ, justification. We long for an ever-increasing supply of gospel power that permeates. And where does it come from? It comes from our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this was the vision for Paul's life, and it should be our vision as well. Paul was willing to suffer for Christ because Christ suffered for him. 
He was willing to lose everything in this life because Christ lost everything for him. He was willing to empty himself because Christ emptied himself for him. He says, I'm going to spend my life pursuing a knowledge of Christ because Christ has pursued and known me. And I'm going to live my life with the end in view to attain the resurrection of the dead because Christ was crucified and risen for me. Friends, that's who Christ is for us. The question is, will we, who are weary and heavy laden, will we come to him, not with our resume, but with with the empty hands of faith? Will we come to him not with our attempts to climb the mountain, but ready to receive the free grace of the gospel? And so as we close, let me leave you with this quote from another pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He says, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus, and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us in Christ through the gospel. God, we pray that you would teach our hearts by the power of your Spirit to recognize our attempts at works righteousness, that we would see that false religion and repent and turn to Christ. God, I pray that we would lay our burdens down and see the surpassing work of knowing Jesus, our righteousness. And God, that you would give us a vision for the future, that we would not just say, oh, I, I used to know Christ or, or I knew Him well, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life pursuing a knowledge of my resurrected Savior and living in His power until I see Him face to face. God, may we dive and dive again and again and never come to the bottom of the depths of Your grace for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.